Welcome to Through a Scientist's Eyes. This week I want to try something slightly different. Um, as you as you be aware if you've listened to the last five episodes, a lot of what we spent time doing is on the basics, boring biology of gene expression, how it's controlled at the biochemical level, and how it integrates into the cell. What I want to do this week is take a little bit of a what-if journey and talk about how that gets used in the root world and some of the ways that we can talk about you know the far-flung potential things that you could do with it so what I want to do today is go a little sci-fi on you um, and take take a scenario of how would we address going to space what would how would you you modify cell biology and the gene expression systems to help support um, living in space and some other changes that you might want to make uh, based off of radiation, uh, differing conditions on differing planets that you just won't be able to account for at the beginning. The, the gene expression systems and the cell biology have some ability to cope with that, but obviously it typically works on a longer scale than what we'd be talking about for most individual lives. So let's get started. When we talk about cell biology and gene expression, a lot of times what we really are talking about, um, particularly when we ask the question of why does it work this way and how does this work this way, is developmental biology. And particularly that part where we have this weird nexus going on where we have developmental biology means that we're trying to progress towards from unpatterned cell to patterned cell. What do I mean by that? I mean, when we start off as embryos, depending whether we're talking about one day, five days, five weeks, you start off as an unpatterned ball of cells. And all these cells have that potential to be any cell in your body. And that's a great thing. That allows us to, to create a, a minimal number of cells. And then we can start portioning off parts to be different parts based off of 3D axes and gradients of chemicals in that in that bundle of cell which turns from a ball to a tube and then that tube now that it has polarity can have ends and one end uh, ends being your feet and one end up and ends up being your head say that three times fast what it also means though is that because we have this genome which is finite it has x number of genes in order to do this, to even get to that, that version where we go from ball of cells to polarized tube, we have to reuse some of these genes. We only have so many genes and they get used in different stages of development for different things, but it's the same gene. Where that becomes an issue is, is if, if you are only using the same gene all the time to do different things, you have to be able to explain the context in which you want the body to work in. So again, to put that in, in real-world terms, it means that if I have a gene that I'm using to create that gradient, I'm going to use that gene again when I go from ball to tube. I'm going to use that again in, in the hand. So when I'm trying to pattern which end is the elbow and which end is the wrist, I'm going to use that same kind of gradient system. Now, the thing is, and the really cool part of this is, the cell has to be able to respond differently. You can't have the same response to going from a ball to a tube as going to, from an elbow to a wrist. 
because now you have bone, now you have muscle, you have all these differentiated tissues that you have to create within that that didn't exist when you were going from ball to, to two. And each one of those then again has to have a reference for what's going on around it so that it knows where it should be made. And this is where we get to that fascinating part of biology where there's this weird relationship between needing to be dynamic, needing to be able to express all these things, and yet needing to tell to explain when it can't be done. And this is when we get into epigenetics and, and that part that I mentioned about histone modifications. Um, we can also do that on DNA. We can also do that on the proteins that are involved in the process. And so by changing all these, these minute differences in the dynamics of the protein, so the kinetics, how fast they move, how fast they respond, we get slightly different responses. And that gives us the ability to change how a cell interprets a signal. It's a very complex system and one that's really hard to explain, particularly in, in conversational formats such as this, without going through a scenario. So what I'm going to do today is I want to take a what-if scenario and I want to take one of my favorite um, genres, which is sci-fi, and talk about how we could use this, this system to create a more spacefaring more robust group of humans that would allow us to move into the stars and really just focus on how we would use gene expression and cell communication to build a system out that would give us more dynamic uh, responses such that within a, a generation or a lifetime we could respond to the kind of different environments that we might find in a different planet. So. That's where I want to go today. Uh, hopefully I can do a good job of explaining this in such a way that it, it, you can see what I, I see in my head. And hopefully this will be a good way to, to kind of tie up and explain what's going on in cell biology and how gene expression and epigenetic fits into that big bigger picture. So space travel. I, I think one of the more interesting parts here is how would it work within the biology and how do we make sure that who we're sending into space ends up being a human at the end? Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of psychological things. There's, there's this, the distance and how long it would take to get there and get back. That stuff, let's pretend that we come up with a warp drive that allows us to get there nearly instantaneously. But let's also assume that we would want to populate other planets. It's a really fundamental question is how would you how would a human develop on another planet? Would we? Um, even though we don't like to talk about it, our biology is a response to our planet. Um, so if you're if you're <laughs> if you develop on a planet that has higher gravity, different air content, would the would the end result even starting off with the same DNA? Would it look like us? Would we recognize it as human? It's, it's a really fundamental question, and I think, I think it's one of those sci-fi questions that's kind of, you know, always at the back of my mind, because, you know, psychology and how you think and how you, you interact with the world is a direct response of your brain to the world around it. So if the world around it is different, are you actually human? Um, and be, I don't want to go any further down that that slippery rabbit hole. Let's let's bring it back, right, to the things that that kind of our physiology, what our physiology is based on. 
that's our developmental biology, how we developed from ball of cells to, to tube to the, the, to the people that we look like now. And, the gene, and that's a result of the gene expression. And again, reusing the same dynamic systems that we have in place in, in one system, reusing that in another system. And again, to give you the, the Cribs note version, a lot of the way we do that is by closing certain chapter books. For example, if you're a neuron, the way we reuse some of those genes that might be important in a heart is we just simply close those books off. We use the histone modifications, we use the beads on a string, and we tie that, we wind that tightly, and we keep that sealed so that you can't accidentally turn that on in response to a signal that in a heart cell would give you that response. In a neuron, it gives you a completely different response. Same communication model, different response, which then leads to a different outcome. So how would that happen in space? Could we re reuse that? What if we landed on another planet? How would all this work? And that's what I'm going to go through. Um, we're going to, I'm going to give you a couple what-if scenarios, um, and then going to talk through some of the things that would be important in building the, the cell and gene expression parts of that system. Not going through all the other parts, but really just focusing down on that as a what-if scenario. How would you do it? So you'd want a system that could be turned off in non-developmental parts of the life cycle of an organism. And the cool thing is, so if we think about this, and I've put a little bit of thought into this, you'd want a whole system of creatures. You wouldn't, it wouldn't work if it was just humans, right? Because then we potentially couldn't eat the creatures that we needed to for our, our normal physiology to work. So you'd need farm animals, you'd need grass, vegetables, and you'd want to build in this dynamic piece to all of them so they could have some developmental dynamicism so that you could create the ecosystem. You're essentially creating a, a, a live terraforming system. So not just the idea that we, we make Earth-like conditions wherever we go, we do the reverse. We make, we make humans and ecosystems that are aligned with the planet. It's a lot faster in theory never done it so you can't say how fast it would be but the goal would be to have that happen within one generation and that by the time you get to the third or fourth generation of every creature you have more of an optimized for the conditions which is kind of the cool part here is that you are you're building out a strategy where you would have humans that could survive in different planets now where that gets weird is would they be able to to procreate across different planets. And they might not be able to. They might be able to, it depends what parts of the pieces got changed. So that's where you'd want that, that difference between dynamicism and development, and mainly having that during development for a couple of reasons. One, you wouldn't want an individual responding and changing all their DNA and what genes are expressed simply because of a snowstorm, because of some envi environmental catastrophe. And while that sounds like it should be a good, a good thing for the system, that dynamic ability to change is actually energetically expensive. <clears throat> so if you're in an environmental catastrophe, you're going to have less food available to you. 
And so if you have less food available to you and you have a system which, which is trying to rebuild everything, you're actually, it's not a, it's not a good strategy, right? Because you, you don't have the excess calories to replace all those cells. That's a really energetically expensive process. So you'd want a system that could really only be used during development and then turned off. And then it'll have to wait till the next generation. And that's essentially what, what evolution does. But we would be reducing the amount of time. We'd be giving more flexibility to the, to the humans that we're sending to other planets to adapt to these other planets. Now, you'd also want to deal with the timing of development. And that's, again, another area where gene expression and the, the relationship between cell signaling is actually really cool and really works really well. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, so if we think about it, you'd really want, if you're going back to the sulfur analogy, and the idea if you went to a planet with a lot more sulfur, you'd need essentially a catalytic converter for every cell because they'd all have to be able to use oxygen. Now, it'd be most important in the cells that are part of how we breathe, so your lungs, your blood supply, how we transport oxygen. But you'd also want to be able to protect the cells of the skin from that. So you'd want it to be a general change, right? You'd want it to be in every cell. So you'd want that early in development. So you'd want to make sure that those kind of baseline physiology, things around respiration, things around how you eat, how you make energy, how you use energy, um, all these things would be modifiable in early development, but probably not in late development. And then you'd want, you'd have a series of things that you'd want the exact opposite. So for example, high gravity. Now, you probably don't want every cell reacting to high gravity, but muscles are going to have to work differently. Um, one of the things that we know about uh, returning astronauts is they get muscle atrophy because their body refuses to maintain the muscle mass in the absence of gravity. Maybe that's something that changes. Maybe that's something that we want to change in the physiology. And you certainly want, if you're developing on a planet that is heavier gravity, a different muscle set. Not that you would necessarily want to create a race of supermen that could come back to Earth and take over because they're stronger, faster, and they can leap tall buildings in a single pound. But you'd certainly want them to have a, a biology that would work with different cell, different gravitational pieces. Maybe even, you know, different different ways that the planet interacts with with its gravity maybe it has a swinging gravity maybe it has a core that that turns at a different radius and so maybe there's a magnetic piece that we don't have to deal with on earth that you'd have to deal with on a different planet and so you'd want to build that flexibility probably later in life uh, later in development sorry not in life and so this is this is the kind of things that gene expression is really good at, particularly when it's, it's done in the context of the dance between cells as you're developing, where they're talking back and forth. They're making minute changes. So you'd want to build this into the system so these minute changes could be part of the conversation that cells are having one-to-one -one and in groups, so that as you're going from ball to, to tube and you start to get that polarity, we've already set that each cell is going to have this new catalytic converter. Now, once you get past that stage and we start talking about development, we're, we're defining bone versus muscle versus blood supply. We're going to need to have some of that flexibility built in. So again, going back to the gravity thing, it's going to be important 
if we are in a higher gravity scenario for our bones to have a slightly different structure. I, I, I can't tell you what that structure is because I don't actually know the, the, bio, the biophysics well enough. Same with our muscles. Maybe they have to have a slightly different architecture of, of how the, the fibers work. And that's going to take some trial and error. And that's going to take potentially lengthening development and lengthening the period in which muscles are, are created and built. Maybe you have to build six or seven different types of muscle fibers. And then once the animal gets into the environment, then it gets tweaked, right? It gets the, the right muscle becomes the dominant one and the wrong muscle becomes you know, something that stays in the background, maybe that replaces tendons. I don't know. And the good news is the point of the system such as this is that you don't have to know. We're not predetermining anything. We're allowing the, the situation and the conditions on the ground to, to guide development. And that's really what all evolution is. That's really what developmental biology is. And the hope would be that you would end up with an animal that would look enough like us that we could point to them and say they're human, but would be built for their, their planet. And maybe, who knows, they come back smarter. Um, hopefully they don't come back to dominate us. <laughs> and that's one of the tropes that's usually used in sci-fi. Um, but before I go into that, I'm going to kind of tie this up.